Good morning, Vineyard. It is so good to see you. Hi, my name is Jesse. If I haven't had the chance to meet you or you're like, are we going into hour two of worship right now? Is that what's happening? No, I'm the worship director here, but I'm so excited to get to share with you something God just slammed into my heart a week ago. And I wanted to start, though, by, just by saying I, I love this church. I am so honored to get to speak here. I don't, Pastor Joe is so protective of you and, and protecting the word of God that comes from the stage, and it's an honor, but mostly I just, I love worshiping with you, getting to sit down here and hear you belt out your heart for God just is, is a, such a blessing. So thank you for being my church family. There's nowhere else I want to be. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I'll just give you, does anybody take notes? I love to take notes, and so I have like special Sharpies, and I bring multiple colors so that I can like doodle while I'm doing it and make my notes look like a bullet journal, but for those of you who like to take notes for the sermon, this is our title. Are you ready? New Wine and Fast Cars, and Pastor Joe still let me preach after I told him I'm really, I was really excited what our, our sermon title is, so get ready. We are going to start by reading in Matthew 9. So you're welcome to pull out your Bible, you can pull out your YouVersion app on any tablet or on your phone, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, I don't know about you, that almost never made sense to me. I have always hated that passage. I don't get it. I grew up in a denomination where we don't drink. So wine and wineskins and it exploding makes zero sense to me. My whole understanding was some people have wine in communion and we drink grape juice. And that was the extent of my knowledge. So that analogy is lost to me, Jesus. And then you have the whole cloth thing happening. So that was lost on me. But then around sixth grade, God bless my mother. If you haven't met Pastor Janice, she is like Martha Stewart plus Jesus. So if you just put those things together, if Jesus could bake cinnamon rolls, that's what the volunteers had this morning. So you might want to serve and join a serving team because sometimes you show up and there's fresh homemade cinnamon rolls. So when I was in the sixth grade, she, for some reason, decided that I needed to know how to sew my own clothes. So there's like a zombie apocalypse, I don't know, and suddenly we have to sew our own clothes. So to my, just, oh, just dragging my heels, I had to like pick out the fabric, and we picked out a shirt, and I remember like cutting the dumb thing around the, the square, and it never lined up right, and I probably cried a lot. Sixth grade was a really angsty year for me. And, and I'm finding with my own daughters that I might be in for um, some trouble if they're anything like I was. But she, she hung in there, God bless my mother, and we made this blouse, and I loved it, and I wore it to school, and it was very pretty. And unfortunately, and to her dismay, this did not instigate a lifelong love of seamstressing. And I think I've maybe made like one curtain since then. 
because that's a square and you can just hem it up. So basically what I'm saying is if there is a zombie apocalypse, the, the Hood family's not going to be looking good. Guys, we're just not. So my first order of business is to make it to the nearest mall, get every all kinds of clothes, because this lady is not going to be able to sew burlap together and keep us safe. Maybe we'd be better off, but keep us safe from the elements. And my sweet husband, when he was dating me, would come over, and some of you, if you've been to Mooching, you know, he would come over. My mom always had, like, fresh-baked cinnamon rolls, and she had the cookies, and she made the bread, and he's like, yes. I am marrying this girl. If the girl becomes the mother, I have got it made. This might be the most controversial thing I'm going to say today. It usually doesn't go over well, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's the truth, and we speak the truth here. I grew up with cream cheese frosting and the fresh-baked everything, and if there's a gun pointed to my head, I can whip out some French bread. But I honestly prefer store-bought. I'm a saint. So if you see my husband, you can just pat him on the back. The poor guy did not get the girl that he thought he was, he was going to get, and he's, he's sucked it up and lived with it. But the point is, this passage just didn't resonate with me. I didn't, I didn't get the, the analogy. The analogy is for the people of that time. It's for the people that Jesus was talking to. So I feel like Jesus has given me a new analogy for today, but also some vision that we can look at as to why this question is even being asked and how we can live correctly as a result of the problem. So just to set it up for you, Jesus, this is not just like some random thing plunked down. Jesus is in a field, and some John's disciples walk up and they ask him this question. No, you have to back up to the beginning of the chapter. Jesus gets off of a boat, and he's in Nazareth, the town where he grew up, and does some things. I think he heals a guy on a mat, if I remember right. And then he goes and meets Matthew, who's a tax collector. Matthew invites him over to his house for a party. I don't know if this is a nighttime party or a daytime party, but what we do know is the Pharisees show up. Now, if you're not familiar with the Pharisees, they are like the ruling wealthy class who followed every one of God's letters in the Old Testament to a T and then added some more. Now, maybe you, like me, know some morality police, like on Facebook. People who want to tell you how to live and add rules to your life, and, and this is exactly who that is. They were on Facebook. They're the morality police. Okay, those are the Pharisees. And they come to Jesus and, they're, and his disciples, and they're like, why are you guys here? Why are you eating and drinking with all these sinners? And Jesus answers them and kind of puts them to shame. But then, almost immediately, we read in the scripture, John's disciples come up and ask, well, why don't you guys fast? Can, can people make up their mind? Like, we want to know why you drink. We want to know why you don't drink. We want to know why you're eating. We, we, don't, we don't know why you're eating. Why, why are you eating? Maybe you should stop eating. Like, Jesus can't please everybody, and that's just a life lesson for all of us. You're not chocolate. Okay, but here's the thing about John's disciples. John was not just John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin, but being John the Baptist was actually a, a humongous deal. He was a prophesied about person who was going to come and tell people and pave the way for Jesus. So let's look at Matthew 3, 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So it sounds like he's going to look like my family if we lose all society. But the point is, he's really gross. I imagine like a gross version of Braveheart. He's walking around, he's got this big hairy vest on, and he's got his leather belt, and he's eating bugs for who knows what reason. So the guys who are following him clearly can put up with a lot, right? They're not afraid of truth. They're not afraid of hard things. They're following this guy who's super weird and keeps getting in trouble with the Pharisees. He keeps calling them snakes and attacking the king, and eventually it leads to his death. But he is doing his job of proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Messiah of the world. So we know these guys are not, they're not looking for an easy path. So why are they coming and asking Jesus this question, challenging, challenging him the way the Pharisees do? I think it's a matter of perspective. I think there are things that we can see from this question that they asked Jesus that show that their perspective is wrong. It's kind of like when I got in my car this morning. Yesterday, my husband was amazing and drove our three kids around and did all kinds of fun things. And I'm not going to tell you how long I drove before I realized he's a little taller than me. So police officers love me anyway, but I had to adjust my mirrors and realized they weren't pointed the way they're supposed to be pointed, right? But they were just a little bit off. So if my mirrors are just a little bit off, I might not notice for a really long time that they're not showing me the things around me that I need to be aware of. They're not showing me the cars around me. The very reason that they exist is negated because that perspective is just like barely a touch off. And that's what Pastor Joe tells us all the time, and it's so true. Our perspective, our mindset can make or break us. It has to be with Jesus. If we are just three degrees off, isn't that what he says? If we're three degrees off today, not a big deal. In five years, in ten years, you are nowhere near where you were supposed to be following Jesus. Now, the Pharisees, they don't even have mirrors, Their mirrors are gone. They're in a beater car. They're going the wrong direction. They're all over traffic. But it's it's the tricky ones. It's when your mirror's just a little bit off that our perspective can take us down. And that's what I want to talk about today. We've got three perspective shifts that I think that are a problem here and that we need to be aware of as we move forward. So, are you ready? Get your pens out. Number one. John's disciples are comparing themselves to others. Now, as soon as I say that, I almost want to roll my eyes, like, one more talk about comparing ourselves to others. But, but it's, exact, it's true. And comparing ourselves to others goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I experienced it in my home last night when child A says, why can't they stay up late as child B? And I say, child B obeyed better today, so you're going to bed. And that's the way that it goes. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't work that way right? But even my five-year-old and my seven-year-old are comparing themselves to other people. We see Satan bring this in with Eve. God has given them one tree, the knowledge of good and evil they are not to eat from. And what does Satan say to Eve? In Genesis 3, 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The very first comparison problem. When Jesus came to be baptized, John made it clear, this is Jesus' son, he's the reason that I'm here. But as soon as Jesus' disciples started baptizing more people, what happened? John's disciples got jealous, and they go to John, they're like, what are we going to do? And John's like, nothing, bud. This is the whole point of us being here. How often are we comparing, like I do it all the time, comparing myself to someone whose job is different than mine. Your life is not my life. My Instagram highlight reel doesn't need to look like your Instagram highlight reel. Let's just be honest about that. And you know what? School is starting in a week and a half. I am fully aware that every year I have failed to do the first day of school picture. I mean, sometimes I do it, but they never have like a little chalkboard and their hair's perfect. And it just kills me when I see a child who looks like they got out of bed, they showered themselves, they ironed their own clothes, they calligraphy Pinterested their little board that has their name on it, and they want to grow up to be a nuclear physicist. Meanwhile, my kid barely choked down half of a banana because I might have overslept, and they want to grow up to be a dolphin. <laughs> Comparison's not going to get me anywhere, okay? I just can stay off of it. I, I honestly have gotten to the point, thank you, Jesus, where I can embrace and love everybody's first day of school picks. I love my mom friends who are so good at this, and I know they love me who is not good at that, and it's totally fine. But we do that often. And in Galatians 6, 4, Paul tells us to stop it. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. I feel like, like this is something that we see churches do a lot. Like sometimes as churches, we can look at other churches and think, they're doing such and such a program. Maybe we should do such and such a program. Or, or there have been times when I've been like, well, what's their attendance and what's our attendance? That is wrong. That is 100% wrong. And I have to go back to what the Bible says and what, G, and what Pastor Joe has always told us. This church is not looking to be the biggest church in Madison County or anywhere. We want to be obedient to what God has for us right here in Madison County and have the biggest impact showing people who don't know Jesus that he loves them. That's why I love the way we do VBS. If in case you didn't know, our VBS, our Vacation Bible School, goes into neighborhoods. We went into 11 neighborhoods this year because we are looking for those few kids who don't have a ride to VBS. We are looking for those few kids who are unchurched. That's our goal, just a few more. That's what we're about, one more person saved, one more person surrendering their life to Jesus. And it's an honor, and I love doing that here. If, this is, if you feel like this is something like I do all the time, that comparing yourselves is an issue, this is what I, I wrote down for myself. Join a small group, start volunteering, and do life with other people who are chasing Jesus. This will help you keep your perspective. You get in your word, you follow Jesus, and you be aware of the people that have influence in your life. If you want to be like Jesus, hang out with people who are like Jesus. We want to reach the lost, and we want to be influenced 
by the word of God and by his people. And this is the greatest place to find that community and find that family. I am psyched that small groups are starting next week and you're not going to beat me to the table. And I, pro- I don't get early dips because I'm staff. Just putting that out there. All right, number two. John's disciples are trying to please God through their works. Okay, their, their question. Why are we fasting and your guys aren't? That's a great question. So let's talk about fasting for just a second. Fasting is when we abstain from something like food in order to focus on a period of spiritual growth. Now, usually we do it with fasting from food. You can do it from social media. You can do it from Netflix. You can do it from movies. You can do it from chocolate. It's whatever. But the whole point of it is for you to hear from God more clearly to take out something that's a habit in your life, maybe something that might be distracting you, and use that time, use that vacuum to lean in to what God is saying. When we fast, we are sharpening our other senses, especially from food. When we get hungry, we we get irritable, right, at first. But we we get sharper. We, we just can hear more clearly, and things are just, we're just more aware of everything, and it's the perfect opportunity to really focus on what God's saying. Over and over in the Bible, when there's a battle, when there's awful things going on, people would fast and pray to hear what God had to say to them. And we have that honor because we are followers of Jesus. But Jesus is making a really good point. Why are you asking about fasting when I'm right here. And as I look at that, I realize that John's disciples actually are lumping themselves in with the Pharisees, which is really weird because usually they're on opposite sides. But he tells them, putting, that he tells us that fasting is ridiculous if he's here. The Pharisees are doing it because he, they don't believe he's the Messiah and they're trying to earn their way into heaven. So, for John's disciples to be attaching themselves to the same thing says exactly that. They're trying to follow the laws of the old covenant, but drawing attention to the amount of fasting they do and comparing themselves to the perfect rule followers of the day. Following every command that Jesus gave us does not make him love you more. Like, it's really hard for me to say that because this is a thing that I struggle with. I always want to make Jesus proud. I'm always trying to, to just do better. But I know that I know from the word of God that he loves me the same today as he did yesterday, as he will for all of eternity. He is never disappointed because he is never surprised by what I'm doing. So Jesus cannot love me more if I have what I deem is a good day, and he doesn't love me less when I screw up. If the gospel is not too good to be true, it's not the gospel. Does that make sense? Jesus didn't come down here to die for us and be raised back to life from the dead so that we could put him in a box and make sense of him and make a bunch of rules that we can tick off and feel good about ourselves. It's too good to be true. That's why we surrender our lives. Why surrender your life if you can make sense of it? Nothing in all of creation. Are you ready? No life, no death, no angel, no demon, no present, no past, no future, no power, no height, no depth 
can separate you from the love of God. That's in Romans 8. He loves you the way you are. Number three. They don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. Now, I think that's kind of like, well, no kidding, because they're not Jesus' disciples. Now, John had told them himself at least two to three times by now, because Jesus came to be baptized by John, right? And if you're familiar with that story, John says, no, 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 you baptize me. And Jesus says, no, I need to be baptized first. And then God breaks forth from the clouds and speaks, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, alights on Jesus's shoulder. Earlier on or later on, I'm kind of confused on the chronology, to be honest, but John sees Jesus and says immediately, there goes the Lamb of God, And two of his disciples turn around and start following Jesus. Those guys got it. But these guys, for some reason or other, weren't ready to believe that Jesus was who he says he is. Being baptized by John demonstrated a recognition of our sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to follow God's law in anticipation of the Messiah. So if we stick with John's baptism, we're sticking with the old law. We're saying, Jesus isn't here yet, so I'm just going to do my best, and I recognize that I'm sinful, and I'm just going to try to earn this until he's ready to forgive me. He's already here. It's a, it's a done deal. We can't have it both ways. We can't put one foot in the faith of Jesus, and we can't have the other foot trying to build a safety net underneath of us. It's just like the new wineskin, old wineskin thing. So here's, here's what I think. If Jesus was here today... This is how he, or maybe 2003, Jesse, this is how he would have explained it to me when I was 18. Are you ready? Here is my dream car at 18 years old. Now, those of you who are laughing, I feel like you know where this car comes from. Some of you may or may not be aware of, there are about 25 Fast and the Furious movies. There we go. Yeah, you've maybe seen number 10. I'm diehard. I'm from number one, day one, okay, 2001. Fast and Furious, Paul Walker is driving a 1995 Toyota Supra Turbo. All right, that thing has 320 horsepower, but then it gets souped up to 544 horsepower. It goes zero to 60 in 4.3 seconds and tops out at 185 miles per hour. It was all I wanted when I was 18, and the good-looking guy in the front seat didn't hurt my feelings either. Okay, now, this is what I drove. Oh, this is, um, was referred to by my whole high school as the Basset bus. It's not a bus. I was very offended by that, but I did sell Basset hounds in order to pay for this. This is a 1990 Honda Accord EX with burgundy seats, suede that got rubbed out by my brothers, and you know you want one. It has four cylinders. It goes zero to 120, 90 if my parents are in the room. Okay, in, in maybe five years. Like, it took me a long time to get up to that speed, and then the car felt like it was going to fall apart, so I never did it again. Okay, so don't tell anybody. But in the Fast and the Furious, you have this group of street racers, and what they do is they build these cars, and then they race the cars, right? So you have this Supra, and in the first movie, Paul Walker's character has to take this burnt-up shell of a car and make it a 10-second car. 
All right, so he soups it up with all these tuner parts, takes it from 320 horsepower to 544 horsepower, plus he adds NOS, and I'm not talking about the energy drink. I am talking about nitrous oxide system, which shoots nitrous oxide into your engine, then converting into oxygen when combined to your fuel gives you an extra 100 horsepower every time you push the little button. Thank you. I practiced really hard on that. I think we need to all recognize I am not a gearhead, and my gearhead friends were in the first service, and I got a grade A when I finished. So I was very proud of that. But you get the point. You can't put NOS in a regular, you can't put NOS in my Honda. You can't put NOS in the Bassett bus. Do you know what's going to happen? If we're lucky, it'll fall apart. If we're not lucky, it explodes. And I'm not going to be Denzel Washington walking out of his explosion while everything happens behind him. I'm dead, okay, or running for cover. You can't put NOS in a factory-built car or a really old crappy car, okay? And you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. And you cannot earn God's grace when it has been freely given to you. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we get to live by the Spirit. We get to put off our simple ways, and we get to follow him as hard as we can. And that is our joy, and it is our gift and our love to give it back to the one who loved us more than we can imagine. But we never have to earn God's love. There is no condemnation in Jesus. I have all the condemnation for Jesse. I have all of it. I didn't exercise today. I drank twice as much coffee as water today. I did not read a book with my kids today. I was short with my husband today. My house really needs to be cleaned. Whatever your list is, that's my list. Whenever you're going to bed at night, the things that we've picked up as these burdens that we suddenly have to carry around, and if we can put them down or we fill out the right checklist, then we get to feel good about ourselves, and God must be proud of us. That's not how it works. John 5, 24, Jesus tells us, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering. John's disciples weren't sure about Jesus. And maybe you find yourself there today. Maybe you are not, you have not been 100% ready to put both feet in and say, I'm going to rest my eternity, I'm going to rest the future that I have on the word of God and on the knowledge that Jesus died for me. If you have never heard this before, God loves you. There is no Jesus loves you and God is angry. Jesus told us over and over and over again, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Everything I say is what the Father told me. The love I show laying my life down for you comes from the Father. 
God is not angry at you. He did everything he could to show you he loves you. Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and then he was tortured and beaten beyond recognition. He was hung on a cross and he died for you. And then they put him in a grave that no man could open and three days later, no one could find anything in that tomb but some cloths. And an angel saying, why are you here? He's not here. That's why I was saying he is triumphant over death. Death could not hold you. Death cannot hold God's love from you. Today is your day. Every day is your day. But today we have people who want to pray with you. People who want to celebrate you. This is a family. We love each other. We might not head sometimes and work through it. We work together and we grow closer to Jesus because of and with each other. Or maybe you find yourself like me. You've been walking this tightrope, trying to just do enough good things to not tip all the way over into God's disappointment. I'll say it again because I have to hear it. God is not disappointed in you. If you are going to picture God in your mind's eye, I hope you realize that those eyes could not be more full of love and understanding. And I know what you went through. And I love you anyway. And I love you with it. I hurt when you hurt. And I rejoice when you rejoice. And I have never left you. And I will never leave you. So as we come up to our feet, I just encourage you to take advantage of these prayer people here today. They have prepared. They are ready. They are excited to pray with you. Maybe you have something to pray about nobody knows. You walked in with something and nobody knows what you're going through. Whether it's small, whether it's huge, come forward. This is our opportunity to love one another.